Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 407 with an amazing person. His name is Evan Jacobs and he is the vice president of uh, finishing and stereo over at Marvel Studios. Every final pixel that you see on the screen, he is responsible for of every Marvel film and he is really, really cool guy. First note I want to know about Evan. Obviously, he's got an amazing career and go through that. But Evan, during a, a small part of his career, he was a managing artist over at Digital Domain. And he was my manager when I first started there. And if it wasn't for the guidance that he gave me, uh, I wouldn't be on the path that I am now. And he was one of the best managers I've had. Probably, no, he is the best manager I've ever had in, in terms of being an artist. And it was really, really amazing to reconnect with him. Obviously, now his responsibilities have changed a great deal. And he is responsible for some really cool stuff over at Marvel. Uh, and I'm really uh, very excited to, that we were able to talk with him. But I do want to say special thanks to Evan for all the great stuff that he's done for me. Uh, and it's a really great way to kick off 2023. But uh, Kristen, what did you think of uh, talking to Evan and all the cool stuff that he's done in his career? Yeah, I mean, just he kind of gives us just all the ins and outs of his career, the highs and lows of working in the industry. It was just so interesting to hear how he started off and kind of just bounced around to so many different VFX places um, and then even having his own um, company for a little. And then he ended up at Marvel, um, which I guess uh he, you know, he's just worked on so many, like the films, including like Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man, No Way Home, WandaVision, and then yep. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. I mean, so many good ones. But I think it was how he became the stereographer was when he was traveling and then he wanted to stay at home more. So then he got the job of working post. Um, so that was just fun to hear about. Um, yeah. Just that in general and then you guys just get into a lot of technical stuff um talk about the use of hdr um and just how things are being filmed now so it's it's a really really good podcast i love listening to everything he said yeah absolutely and i think you know evan is really a great guy he's a really good communicator and uh it's really cool to talk to him uh and i love the fact that we can go from just talking about the industry in general to like literally talking about bits and bytes and how each of them matter and how those works because he really does know all that stuff and i love the fact that we can talk about everything in that in those areas um and and yes like i said he's a great communicator and a real good per, uh, people person uh and that's you know i think what allows him to communicate all of the things that need to be done to make a great movie so really happy to be able to have him on okay so uh obviously we're kicking off the new year uh we are just getting started for 2023 we don't have much going on in terms of announcements for products just yet but we do have a couple of events happening at the end of this month so Kristen, what is going on yeah, so on January 23rd, we do have a free webinar, and it is Real-Time to Photo Reel with Enscape and V-Ray for Revit. So check that out. And then again, you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. And the second one is January 25th, which is another webinar, um, and it's Tools and Techniques to Visualize an Eco-Friendly Home. So you can learn how to render an animated virtual tour with Chaos Vantage and V-Ray 6 for SketchUp. So um, really really fun stuff <laughs> good stuff go check it out again that is chaos.com slash events uh, and that is on January 23rd and 25th and of course you can always register for those on our website uh, if you guys want to know more about the podcast Kristen where can they go you can go to facebook.com slash cg garage podcast or chaos.com slash cg garage and if you'd like to watch us go to youtube.com slash chaos group tv Perfect. And if you guys have other ideas, questions, or comments about this podcast or other ones you'd like to see in the future or heard in the past, you can always let us know. Our email is labs at chaos.com. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. And of course, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you there. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, love to see what your thoughts are on 2023 and what we'd have to have a discussion on. I do I do want to tell you guys that I have been uh, working hard on trying to figure out some good ways to address a lot of the conversations that's happening around AI. That is a big goal for me to happen early this year. So I'm going to definitely be tackling some of those subjects. Uh, I have to be a little bit figure, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of work to figure out the best way to approach those subjects and what to do about it. Obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in that area, but I am working hard on this and we will definitely have at least uh, a few, if not several podcasts on the subject of AI. And I'm excited to have that. But if you guys have ideas of guests, please again, let us know. 
Again, that is labs at chaos.com. We'd love to hear from some people uh, on either side of the conversation because I know it is definitely a big debate that I'd like us to all discuss all of those, all of those issues on that area. All right. But for now, please enjoy episode number 407 with Evan Jacobs. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Actually, you, <laughs> we haven't talked in a very long time. It's probably been close to 20 years, right? How is it possible that it's been that long? I feel like we've been in, I, I don't know, nothing. Uh, it's just we've insane. been in touch with each other in social media, yeah. but we haven't actually yeah. had conversations. No, that's true. That's true. Time. That's true. Uh, but uh, the, uh, let's let's you know to just get our, our listeners sort of uh, refreshed. It's like when you and I first met. You were my manager at Digital Domain, right? That's right. You That's right. you sort of uh, uh, shepherded my early part of my career, and it was a very important part of where I became what I became. Honestly speaking. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, you know, you know, I considered you at the time we met um, at DD and you were, um, I don't know where, where were you career wise? You were probably uh, the middle of the, the, you know, you were sort of building, right? You would come out of, um, but uh, I came from an industry. Yeah. I came out of a different industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were sort of learning the film industry, but you had, even then, um, a command of the technical that most people uh, who had been working professionally didn't have. So that was always you, you. You impressed me from the beginning, and we were fast friends because I, I thought you were fantastic. And um, and it's amazing to see how far you've, you've taken that since. But um, but yeah, I mean, I remember we were talking. Remember, like on stealth. Uh, mm-hmm. In those days, we were struggling with with render engines and stuff. And, yep. and these were the early days of global illumination. And you were right on the forefront of that, trying to figure that out and figure out, yeah. you know, at a time when everybody was using render man, yep. um, you were like, no, 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 there's another way. There's another way. <laughs> well, render man does that now too, but it's a little bit <laughs> different these days, but let's, let's take a step back because obviously, I mean, that's sort of the, the, it's kind of like the movies where we start in the middle and we said like the, 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 where we met, but then let's find your origin story. Where does oh, this start? Geez. Because you've been doing this for a, a while and has a gamut of experience in this area, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, uh, since I was a kid, I, always wanted to be uh, work in the film industry and I had a particular interest in um, I guess genre films um, so uh, science fiction fantasy horror that sort of thing and so I um, and I was always fascinated by the mechanics of how one does that and right. so um, like a lot of people of my generation you're you're just hungry for any information you can get so that's cinefix and um, uh, you know, the, um, there was a magazine called Cinemagic. I don't know if you ever yep. ran across that one, which was like literally how to do like homemade versions of theatrical effects. Um, Wasn't there so like I, a Phantasmagore or something like that? Yeah, well? that's another one too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All that stuff. And, and because you just, you know, the, this is in the pre YouTube days and you just didn't have access to very much information about how anybody actually did stuff. And, um, and so I went to film school, but when I got out of film school, I was like unqualified to do anything really. Like most people seem to be when they come out of film school (laughs) and I needed to get a job. And, and I, and I, I actually thought, well, maybe I'll, um, I had, you know, I'd been involved with a lot of in film school, a lot of post-production things, sound editing, editorial was a big piece of the things that I had helped out on other people's projects with and stuff but I didn't know where to go. Like there's nowhere to go and apply for these jobs, but visual effects was unique because visual effects, there were like buildings and receptionists and there were addresses and there were real (laughs) places. And so I got a list and I started going door to door um, because I didn't know anybody um, in the industry at all. And I started going door to door um, different facilities. And I, and I, 
I went to try to go to Apogee, couldn't get in there, tried to go to Boss, couldn't get in the front gate, could try to go, you know, all these different old school places. But I ended up at a company called Fantasy Two Film Effects, which is Gene Warren's company in Burbank, and they happened to be shooting something in their parking lot. And so they were all outside. And so I was like, oh my God, and I just started hanging around. And I was like, I want to do this, you know, I want to help out. What can I do? And I just started as a PA there. Um, they needed somebody to sweep floors and help out on this shoot and whatever. And I ended up, that was my toehold fo- toe into the industry. Wow. And I learned more in those three months um, than I had, you know, in all the years before, because you're just there and you're doing it and you learn all the, the, the reality of what it takes to do it. And there's a unique place because it was a small family owned company, but they were doing optical, the photochemical opticals, miniatures, creature effects, second unit type shooting, like everything was happening there. You know what I mean? So I got a, a really nice kind of overview, but all in this really scrappy, uh, small company way. And so then after that, um, I had the, uh, I, I was lucky enough to get a job at boss film, which was kind of like the antithesis of that. Right. It was like this, probably the second largest facility in the world at the time next to yeah. ILM. And, um, this would have been, um, the hunt for red October, um, and, and for, for about six years after that, I was there at boss ended up in the model shop, working in miniatures, mechanical effects, motion control. Um, and I enjoyed that a lot, but this was like sort of about the midway through my career there at boss was when Jurassic park came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were, we all went to see that and everybody came back very morose on Monday morning. <laughs> sort of like, Oh no, you know, cause we had seen computer stuff was starting to happen, but it was happening much faster up at ILM than it was happening everywhere else. And so we were just dabbling, you know what I mean? A little bit of commercial work here and there and that kind of stuff. And, um, and after that it was like, Oh no, this tool set is going to change the whole industry. And it happened a little bit slower than you would think, but, but you know, when you look back on it, it was pretty quick and, mm-hmm. and, um, so I, but it was interesting because my background, like, so when I was a kid, um, so we're talking about like 13, 14 years old was when the first personal computers kind of came out to date myself a little bit. So the Apple two, the, you know, the TRS eighties, the old, these old computers, Commodore that you 64. Get exactly all <laughs> that. So I grew up in that period, taught myself to program computers and stuff. I just, I just loved it. Um, not because it was a filmmaking tool, but just because I was interested in it. And I saw, and, and, and so when the computer shift happened in visual effects, there were a lot of people that had come to this industry, um, from, you know, being a welder or being, a uh, you know, uh, architectural engineer or whatever, all these different things. And I came to it as a filmmaker. So when I saw this new tool, I was like, cool, we can do some of the things that we were struggling to do believably. Now we can use this thing to do them, you know? So I was actually kind of excited about it. But at the same time, um, my bread and butter, my rent was being paid by doing miniatures mostly. So um, I started a company um, in uh, 1994 with two partners, John Warren and Doug Miller called Vision Crew Unlimited. And we that's what we were doing was miniatures, mechanical effects, motion control. Um, and then we started dabbling in uh, visual in, in, you know, digital effects, like using then this was a period when you were talking about SGI being the predominant professional grade computer. Right. Yep. So we couldn't afford even an Onyx, uh, or I mean, sorry, even an O2 or something like that was right. expensive. I was thinking it was $5,000 for a stupid toaster on your desk. Right. Right. Um, which was a lot of money at the time. So we, we used electric image and Mac based stuff. Um, the early, you know, COSA after effects before it was bought by Adobe, you know, this kind of stuff. And we were, but we were dabbling with it we did some comps, we did some CG stuff all, you know, and we started, and I started learning about how to use that tool set, um, in, in, in to, to achieve the, the storytelling goals. That's what we were trying to do. And that's really, in a lot of ways, what's defined my whole career now has been embracing new technology when it comes, but all with this viewpoint of like, well, what, how are we solving this bigger problem, which is how do we tell the stories we want to tell, you know? Right. And that's really what it's been. So, uh, you know, to quickly sort of get you back to, to um, the digital domain years, I mean, we 2002 Vision Crew was kind of running its course. We had we had done a bunch of a lot of commercial advertising work and and some feature work um, 
but you know, it was very competitive and, and the amount of miniature work that was being done was decreasing steadily. And, um, and so, and we, and we were interested in kind of pursuing other things and we felt kind of limited. We didn't have the resources to, you know, like if you think about a company at that period of time, like station X, I don't know if you remember those guys, they were an NT based studio that was doing visual effects. They, even that was a relatively small boutique company, but they had resources we didn't have. We couldn't go down that road. We'd never be able to compete. So, um, so we closed down vision crew, sold off all the stuff and, and closed the buildings and everything. And then I went out into the freelance workforce, um, and, and then not long after that ended up at digital domain as a department manager. And that was, um, an opportunity for me to, you know, I don't know, it's interesting to deep dive on this a little bit, but when I look back on it, but I had a weird branding problem in in my career because I had spent, you know, whatever 18 years doing miniatures and everybody thought of me like that. And so when I would call my people in my Rolodex and say, okay, look, I closed the company, want to do something else. They said, great, we'll call you if we need a miniature. And I was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't have a company anymore. I need to do something else now, right. you know? And, um, and I was really lucky that Jeff Stringer at Digital Domain was looking for somebody and, and, um, and, and kind of took a, uh, you know, took a chance really, because it was an outside play to hire me into that role. I didn't, on paper, I didn't fit. I wasn't corporate. I hadn't yep. worked in that kind of environment. It ended up serving me really well and honestly serving digital domain pretty well because department managers at that time in that company, this was Scott Ross, Nancy Bernstein, and this is the old DD 1.0, whoa, you know, um, they were, uh, the department managers at that time were, 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 uh, bureaucratic in nature that was organized that way. So they, you know, cause I got there and I said, okay, so I'm responsible for, um, recruiting all the artists and they're like, no, 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 no. We have a HR department does that. Oh, okay. Well, why negotiate the rates with them? No, no, no. The HR does that. Okay. Well, I, I put them on shows. No, no, no. There's a uh, production managers on the shows that do that. I was like, so what do I do exactly? <laughs> yeah. You know? So I sort of found uh, this place to play. Uh, and it's so amazing because Digital Man at that time was filled with some of the best people in the world. And, um, and it, it had, had kind of started to grow into, um, new areas. And I just sort of ha- saw it as a, this fun playground to say like, well, what can I do? How can I make it better around here? You know? And, right. and so we started looking at like, um, so I became a, a, a champion at that time for the artists that were working for me for sure, but also for process and workflow and sort of saying like, wait a minute, why are we doing it this way? And I had this entrepreneurial mindset because I had owned this company that, that I brought to that job. Whereas a lot of people were really just sort of I, you know, to say it in a nice enough way that we're kind of just ticking the boxes of doing the day to day of it. So that was what I did there, but it was ultimately kind of limiting. So, um, it wasn't great casting for me in the long run. I, it was great. I learned a lot there and I was, I met amazing people like yourself. So I was happy to be there, but I had an opportunity to leave and become a, a freelance visual effects supervisor, or actually was hired by a company called Mr. X in Toronto. Yeah. Um, and that was where I wanted to be more creative, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was excited to get back to that. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I'm, I'm glad you took that break because if it wasn't for, 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 for that time there, I wouldn't be where I am now because I think there was something that you did, you know, you said definitely a lot of the managers there were very bureaucratic. They were just checking boxes about doing things, making sure every, you know, everyone was in the right seat, but you were looking like, no, well, where does you know, like for me personally, it's like, where does Chris want to be? You know, yeah. Chris is right now doing like I was in the modeling department. It's okay. He wants to be on iRobot, right? Oh, he wants to be lighting. Okay. And oh, he, you know what he does? Yeah. You had, you convince people, no, he has the skills to be a lead on this, on this project and had to, and then you would like, I remember one, one point you're like, there's a really cool show coming on Eon Flux. I don't know if you want to be mm-hmm. on that. I remember that one. And I was excited about that. And then, so, yeah. so you, it was really kind of nice to have that. I haven't had that, yet. you know, working at all my years in visual effects, I never had that kind of uh, mentorship that was really nice to have. And so I really appreciated wow. that time. And you did, and you, but you also came from knowledge of the actual industry. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> you did, so yeah. you knew what it took. Well, um, that's the thing. I mean, I, it's nice of you to say, I, I, I that was what I, I took pride in that. Uh, you know, for me, it was like, I tried to treat the artists that were working for me the way I would have wanted to be treated, you know what I mean? Right. And I, and it was like, let's look for a way. And this is how you retain people. I don't understand why more people don't do it this way, but it was just, 
it, it, to me, it's like, if you're going to have people working for you, you've got to advocate for them and you've got to help them achieve their goals. And, and I still do that today. I mean, that's what you do if you're managing people, you know what right. I mean? Is you're trying to bring them up and, and help them get where they want to go. And if you do that, they'll be loyal and they'll stay and they'll, you know, this was a, a digital domain at that time. There was a lot of competitive energy between Rhythm and Hughes and Sony Imageworks and places that would call. They would literally call artists at their desks and say, I'll double your salary. Come. Yeah. And people would choose to come or not come based on sort of how they were feeling they were treated and what opportunities they had. So it was good business, too. Right. Yeah. To, to, to sort of treat people well, but and keep people motivated. But, you know, some this comes down to the artist, too. And I'll just throw this back at you, Chris, is that you took it. You understood, you wanted to do it. You had the energy and the enthusiasm and that, and you came at it like it wasn't a day job for you. So you, you were, um, an easy person to uh, push along. I, I appreciate that. But, but between you and, and Chris Rich too, also, she was yeah. integral to that, to that yeah. as well. But there, I've been very enthusiastic at many places, but I've never been given an opportunity <laughs> to, to use that enthusiasm positively without right. that you guys enabling that so it was really cool all right now let's let's keep fast forwarding so you were at mr x so what were you what was going on at mr x well so mr x um at the time it's a much bigger uh, organization today um but at the time was about 50 seats um in toronto which was a big shift for me a big change in weather Mm -hmm. uh from southern california in venice beach um but, you know, I had so I had um, actually been a client of theirs on a, sh- a small show. Um, I had hired them to do some stuff. And so I had a relationship with Dennis Berardi, who was the founder of the company. And uh, and he was pro- getting he was uh, producing. He's produced several films and he was producing a film called Skinwalkers. And it was going to take him out of the studio. And that a small studio like that is organized around an individual uh, most of the time. And he was supervising everything they were doing, but now he was going to be out of the studio for like a year producing a movie and supervising it and doing whatever, all that stuff. And so I came in and sort of got handed the keys to this studio, all the artists and everybody and said like, I've got a bunch of shows. Can you please run them? So I ended up supervising five movies while I was there. Um, the most complicated of which was silent Hill. We did a section of, of, of silent Hill, um, which I don't know if you've, are familiar with the film, but basically there's a section with, um, with like millions of cockroaches. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and it was, you know, for a small studio, it was actually pretty technologically challenging at that time to achieve, um, what the filmmakers wanted there. So that was a lot of fun to kind of like figure out how to build that mousetrap in a small environment. Were they predominantly Houdini studio at the time? No. uh, Well, so we had Maya. Maya was the primary animation tool there. So, um, but we had some Houdini, the TDs had some Houdini licenses around. Right. So just a deep dive because it's this kind of show (laughs) and it is a fun bit of history. So we, uh, we, 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 you know, a big crowd of insects at the time was massive was how you would do it. Right. But, but that was expensive. And this was not a show that could afford for us to go and buy a bunch of massive licenses and get the massive TDs and all the things. And so we were like, well, we can figure out some other way. So we bought, I think we got a license to some crappy kind of massive light, a version of some software that was used in video games to do crowds, you know, and basically all it did was sort of randomly move dots around or locators around. And we saw like, okay, great. We'll put a bunch of dots and we'll locate them around and we'll stick, um, we'll stick roaches to them and away you go. And then it was like, well, now the roaches aren't, they're colliding with each other and they need to actually, because they're insects, they actually have to crawl up and over each other. So then it became this thing where we started um, saying, okay, we'll run this SIM. We'll, we'll first, we'll take the set survey. We'll unwrap it into a big uh, unwrapped UV space. We'll run the sim on that flat space, right? Because it's not going to be smart enough to go up the walls and whatever. And then we're going to, then we're going to notice anytime we're going to put, you know, basically circles around these um, dots so that anytime a dot gets near another dot, it's got to go up in Z, right? Right. (laughs) And, and go up and over the thing. And if it's got, if there's two of them, it's got to go up higher, you know, this kind of thing. And we're going to run this and this is just a bunch of math, right? And then we're going to basically take that UV. We're going to wrap it back up into into um 3d coordinates and now we've got roaches that can walk up walls over each other whatever we want to do right but to to even to even know whether the sim worked 
was like a 15 step thing. Right. Cause you had to, you know, like do all that. Then you had to render it. But then right. of course we were using, um, uh, 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 like a, it was the I can't remember now what it was called. Was it Air or something? It was the the uh, the the public domain version of of RenderMan, right? So it was like oh a, right. So it wasn't like a buggy and funky, and it was like, you know what I mean. But so we but we had a um uh some really good really really smart TDs there, and so we figured it out. And so then it was like LODs for um dropping down on the geometry so that we could render the things and get the motion. Then we, then we still with so many roaches and so much geometry, we couldn't render the damn thing. So then we had to slice it up. And then we, so then, you know, you end up rendering slices with LODs, um, then taking all those rendered slices and recombining them into us, into a layer, you know, beauty, uh, spec, whatever, all these layers. And then we built a gizmo and nuke that could then reassemble them all and put them in a comp. But we, but we, we automated all of that. So basically, from the time you had a sim you you, you liked on fl a flat surface, you basically could hit a button and all that stuff would run overnight in a script. And you'd come in the next morning, and we even had the temp comp. Wow! Every, every comp was already temped so that the gizmo would load the latest version and render the temp comp that the compositor had prepared, so that we could come in and watch dailies in the morning. Wow. And already comped. It was pretty slick for a small studio. Yeah. I mean, all of this seems kind of silly by modern standards today, what people do, but we were a small scrappy studio trying to figure out how to do it. And about, yeah, and limited you know, RAM and all that yeah, other problem. All yeah. that all those all those things. And so um so th that was the majority of that show. And then we had we had other like specific I remember being haunted by specific shots. Like we had a shot where we had to do soft body tracking. This was at a time when soft body tracking was really problematic. And um oh my God, hundreds of versions of just, you know, oh it's still sliding on this guy's arm. Like, oh my God, <laughs> brutal. I just I don't miss some of that stuff, you know? Yeah. Um but yeah, so I did that and then the other four shows that I did there were um were smaller shows that were more um, like independent films, uh, focus features, things like this, but they were mostly like uh, plate-based comp heavy stuff, like some matte paintings and some, some blue screen driving comp type thing, you know, simpler stuff. But sure. so it was a bunch of shows happening concurrently and lots of different clients. And I got to kind of, um, from a business perspective, you know, see once again, this thing of having to tap dance around limited resources in a studio and what do you do when your client has an expectation hey i paid for these shots where are they and you're like yeah but you mean i'll have a deadline on the show so you don't have anybody actually working on those shots you know and you're like well it's very complicated you wouldn't understand it's not uh, yeah, yeah it's still in the render farm would you know meanwhile nobody's working on it because everybody's on the crunch of the other thing sure um so i learned a lot about what is what it takes to run a smaller studio but canada was tough um it's cold there and um <laughs> And so I, uh, after about a year of that, I was like, you know, Dennis was back from, from doing skinwalkers. And I was like, you know what guys, I'm going to go back to LA. Cause this is not my place. Um, right. lovely place to visit. Don't want to stay here, <laughs> you know, right. nine months of winter or whatever it was. So I, um, but as I was going back, he, they needed somebody to cover um, Resident Evil Extinction, which Resident Evil 3, as a supervisor in Mexico. And I was like, well, I'm going to be over there anyway. So so I ended up doing that show, um, and I, I co-supervised that with Dennis. So I did all the shoot, all the prep and shoot um, uh, for Resident Evil, and then Dennis took the um, took it in post and finished it. Um but and that and that got me back to LA, uh, which was fantastic. And then I was freelance uh, supervising a bit, you know, looking for shows. That was a a funky time, right? Because then, uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, you had a lot of independent projects kind of dropping out because of financing and this and that. So it was it was it was it was a difficult run there for a little bit, just trying to kind of stay employed. But I managed to do a few fun shows in that period. Um, and did a movie called Ben 10, which was nominated for an Emmy award, which was great. Yeah. And, um, and that was another one where we, where we did it really with a relatively low, uh, amount of, uh, small resources for what we were trying to do. You know what I mean? And, um, uh, cause we had CG characters and CG transition, all kinds of crazy stuff in there. Um, and then, um, uh, one of the bigger shows that I did as a freelancer was, uh, Olympus has fallen, which was, um, one of several shows I did for millennium. Now that this is what's interesting about that show. So 
Um, it ended up being very successful. It was more successful than White House Down, which was like the competing movie with the same script. Yeah. Um, and this, this kind of like was, uh, was it Armageddon and, yeah. and uh, a Deep Impact? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, uh, I've had a career of those with Dante's Peak and and Volcano and oh, that's uh, right. a bunch of those. <laughs> Did that quite a few times. Um, but so with Olympus Has Fallen, we had fifteen hundred shots. We had four months for post because we were trying to get out ahead of the other film and, um, and a $5 million visual effects budget. Whoa. $5 million for 1500 shots. Yeah. Now I think some, (laughs) and that's a lot at that time. That was a huge amount. It was the most I'd ever now it's on now it's normal, but back then it was huge. No, Exactly. It's the most I'd ever done. And I was produce visual effects producer and supervisor on that show. So it was just me and an editor and a coordinator and that's it. That was the team. Um, I had good vendors helping me and I think people would look at that film and they would say, yeah, it looks like $5 million or whatever. And I mean, I get it that there are things that could look better on that show, but if you look at some of the work, it's pretty extraordinary. We, the whole opening of that film takes place in, um, uh, Camp David in winter. And it's like the, the motorcade's driving down a winter road in the snow and then there's a crash and then there's helicopters, all this stuff happens, right? We shot that in Louisiana in the middle of July. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, it's, it, it's all virtual, like everything, you know what I mean? And then, and, um, and it really, and that was ghost that did that work. They did a great job on mm-hmm. it. Um, the majority uh, of that show was the, was locate, you know, we had, um, you know, we're supposed to be in Washington DC around the white house. We're in Louisiana, with nothing, you know, like there's nothing that looks like Washington DC in Louisiana in yeah. Treeport at all. And, and still, it, you know, it was just, it was rough. It's a very tricky show um, for a lot of reasons, but so I'm proud of actually the proud of the work that we did. Could some of the stuff be better? Absolutely. It could be better. Um, but given the resources that we had, I was very proud of it um, because I think white house down spent something like 30 million for the same kind of story. Sure. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but it shows you what can be done. Now, like you say, 1,500 shots at the time seemed like an uh, absurd amount of work. Um, now at Marvel, I I mean, that that would I can't even think of a show that's been that. Even the streaming projects, we do have more shots than that. Yeah, so. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like I remember Stealth was a huge show, and that yeah. was only like 300 shots, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. High, high complexity yeah. for sure. But yes, exactly. It's, the whole world sort of changed in terms of what shot count means now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely just it's just tons and tons and tons of shots. Uh, okay, well that's pretty interesting. So what what's what happened after that? Well, so um, after that, I was uh, you know looking for the next show, and there were shows that I was interviewing with, and you know looking for the next thing. Um, and then Victoria Alonso, who um, uh, I'd worked with. Uh, from my vision crew days. Like I'd known her many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know her from DD, but I knew her from my commercial because she came out of advertising and I worked with her on some commercial spots over the years. Um, uh, she was looking for a, someone to cover stereo conversion um, at Marvel. Mm-hmm. Now they had had a couple of people do it over the years um, before I got here. Um, and for whatever reason, those guys were leaving and they needed somebody to cover this, this seat. Um, this is where the personal and the professional start to intertwine because I had two small kids. So I had, um, during Olympus has fallen, my second son was born like during prep. And I literally am in Shreveport and I get a call saying, my wife saying I'm going into labor. I have to get on a plane and fly from Shreveport all the way back to LA and make it in time for the birth. Right. Right. Like this is like, family legend now, right? This crazy right. trip that I had to make. And then I had to leave. I, I stayed that weekend, said good luck with the baby. And I left and went and made this movie. So for me, um, being out of town, which is what visual effects has become. If you're an LA based person is um, you're out of town six months out of the year, at least right. maybe more like nine months now on a big show. Yep. So, so you have to be okay with all this travel. And I love traveling on a personal level, but for the family, it was rough. It was really, really hard. So I was looking for some way to stay in town, some way to stay relevant in my kids' lives and (laughs) still have a career. 
Yep. You know what I mean? Which is the struggle that I know artists deal with and everybody, it's really, really hard. And so when Victoria called and said, Hey, look, you're going to be in, you're going to be in post perpetually. Like you're just going to stay here in LA, but you're going to be in post all the time on a show. Right. But I was like, well, at least I get to stay in town, take my kid to school in the morning and then I can go and do the show. So I said, let's do it. You know, let's do this thing. Now, let me back up and fill in some gaps because why in the hell is she calling me to be a stereographer? Right. Right. So I had during these period of time where I'm trying to find shows, I got a call from um, one of the HR guys that had, I had worked with at digital domain. Okay. I don't know if you remember Mark, but he calls me up and he says, I'm working at cafe effects and I need somebody to come and help. We're in trouble on Alice in Wonderland. And uh, I don't know if you heard those stories, but it was a challenging show. Yes. And they were under the gun to get um, these things delivered and they were doing it in 3d. It was a, it was a 3d. So it was 2d, um, acquisition on that show, but then all of the CG assets, uh, everything that was added to a comp was done in 3d. So they're mm-hmm. essentially 2d converting plates and then adding 3d elements to it. Right. Right. And this was all, um, at a time when basically there was almost no companies in this business. I mean, N3 was doing it a little bit. Stereo D was just getting going, but avatar was just kind of cresting the wave. And it was like 3d, everything should be 3d. Alice, you should be 3d. And, um, the tool sets weren't there. Nuke didn't have any kind of stereo tools built in. It was really tough. So I came in just to help, uh, at cafe. And I went up to Santa Maria and we just worked tw- seven days a week, 20 20- was a day on that movie for three or four months, helping get it across the finish line and getting the shots delivered. But in the process, I learned a ton about stereo. Right. And and I learned what worked and what didn't and all that stuff. And then that led to um, the same company, Millennium, that had done uh, Olympus Has Fallen. Now, this was before I knew them. The way I got to know them was they called me to to help out because Lionsgate and Millennium, the companies that were releasing Conan the Barbarian remake, Yep. wanted to make it 3d too. Hey, this is like 3d. Let's make every movie 3d. And they said, who do we know? And, and, and I, um, got pitched to them as somebody who could come and help them with that. And right. so I ended up working on Conan for, I went to Bulgaria for six months and then came back and then worked on in post for another nine months, converting that movie to 3d. Um, so I had some expertise in stereo because right. I had done this a bit. I was doing this not because I was, you know, it was just like an opportunity to work. I was just trying to fill in gaps and stay employed. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and it's in, and stereo conversion is very visual effects centric, right? It's a very similar kind of process. Oh, yeah. And so I was, uh, I, I, I kind of could make my way around it, you know, and, and I had an aptitude for it. So anyway, so that's how Victoria, you know, so Victoria was looking for somebody to fill the seat. I had some experience in the process. She knew me. She knew my visual effects background, everything else. She said, I think this guy could do it. So I, and I was like, if I can stay in town, this is fantastic. I'd been hoping to work with Marvel for a long time. So, and it was at the time, it was a pretty small operation here. So it was hard to get in, in, Mm. you know, client side here. It was hard to get a job because nobody would ever leave, um, as a supervisor or anything else. And, um, so anyway, so that was Captain America, uh, uh, winter soldier. That was the first show I did here at Marvel. Um, and, uh, and that, and that went well. And so then I've been here ever since. <laughs> right. <laughs> 30 yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing a ton, <laughs> a ton of stereo conversion. I mean, that's one of the things now is you're not just doing stereo, you're doing all no. kinds of, well, you're doing well, all the finishing now, right? Exactly. So what, what happens over time now as we get into the Marvel years is, is that I, so I started off doing stereo conversion and, um, and kind of the, the thing that I, and you'll appreciate this, the thing that was kind of neat for me as someone who kind of geeks out on process and workflow, the thing that I kind of loved about stereo versus visual effects was that it was so pipelineable because you mm-hmm. really are kind of making widgets in a way, you know, it's like that FedEx thing. If everything's in a box, they can pack the trucks real tight. You know right. what I mean? As soon as someone shows up with a pair of skis, it's hard. And in visual <laughs> effects, all you have are the skis, right? It's right. like it's having to pack everything weird. And so that's why if you think back to like the days of Rhythm and Hughes when they were doing the Garfield movies and the babes and stuff like that, there was like 400 shots of talking animals. You could pipeline something like that. Right. Right. But, but, but a digital domain, you could never pipeline. It was always like, we want something new and unique that's never been done before. And it always required a lot of, um, 
you know, hand holding and special processes and R and D to figure it out, you know? So stereo is not really like that. Stereo, once you kind of figure out like how to do the different kinds of shots, and once it kind of got to a mature state as an industry, you got so that you knew how to do reflections and you knew how to deal with smoke and you knew how to deal with some of the problematic things that come up in stereo, you could just go. And you could, it was, and then it just became about getting those turnovers to be really efficient, getting the shots back, getting the notes addressed, getting, and then getting it into the DI. And so I really geeked out on that process part and, and, and built um, with the team here a really, really refined and tight process for getting that done because the problem and stereo became visual effects would go really late and stereo would have less and less time to do it. So like I said, on Conan, I had like nine months to do the, the stereo conversion. Now we were dealing with like two months, th a month, you know, like very short period of time to turn these movies around. And so how do you do it? It's an interesting problem to solve from a workflow perspective of like, how do you work on temps as you go work hand in hand with visual effects so that you, when you're, so that when they final, you're ready to final too, you right. know? And, um, so that was interesting. And I started doing that and then getting involved with that, you start dealing with the, um, the DI and dealing with color correction and, and sitting in the DI a lot for 3d to make sure that the 2d and the 3d look the same. And then, um, Victoria, when I got here at Marvel, Victoria was heavily, involved and hands-on in every single thing. She was in every visual effects review, every DI review, every stereo review. She was omnipresent, right? Right. And as we got, as the amount of content we produced got more and more and more, went from one movie a year to two movies a year to three movies a year to oh, streaming content, whatever. It got to a point where she couldn't be everywhere all at once and we needed to divide and conquer a bit. And she said, there was a point in time where she was like, look, you've been in all these DIs with me. You know what I'm gonna say. You're calibrated to my aesthetics. Mm -hmm. can you sit in here and get it to 90% and I'll come in and do the last 10. Right. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And so we didn't have a name for it. It was just something I was doing. And then <laughs> at some point it became a thing where it was working and it was making the DIs go more and more efficiently because I could sit with the visual effects team and I'll get into the philosophy of the DI here, but basically you could sit with the visual effects supervisor and you could get the show to a good place before the executives and the filmmakers walk in so that they are not getting falling down rabbit holes of like, Oh my God, everything's broken. You're right. like, no, no, no. We've kind of evened it out. It's all where it should be. And so that became the job. And it, when I, the philosophy of, of the DI here at Marvel is a visual effects heavy studio, right? I mean, on a feature, uh, you know, you're talking about 2,500 cuts in a movie on an average, right? Average film here. And maybe 200 of those shots are non-visual effect shots or drama <laughs> shots, right? right? So so if you think about like on a show like that, visual effects is a big, big partner for getting the movie across the finish line. It's very right. important that those guys um, and, and the visual effects supervisors on from prep all the way through post, they know as much about the show as anybody does. Way more than the DPs usually because right. the DP just shot it and then they left, right? And so... And so, you know, and I'm sure you've probably run into this yourself, or I've certainly heard a lot of feedback from visual effects artists out, out there in the world that it's common that you go into the DI and they add a bunch of contrast and they mess up my mats and oh, now my edges look like shit. And everything was perfect when I finaled it. And now it's all messed up. Right. <laughs> right. And so to combat that, because that absolutely could happen. Because if you don't have someone with that eye and that mindset about protecting the visual effects, you can definitely start applying a look to things that's going to break stuff, right? Sure. And so the visual effects supervisor sitting with the filmmakers all the way through the show and the editors and every, everybody and studio executives, everybody presenting the work as they go. And so they are finely attuned to what matters to people, what doesn't, what can we change, what can't we change. There's, that doesn't mean that the DI doesn't have a purpose because if you just took the visual effects finals and you strung them together, you would be horrified, right? Because, because depending on how good the dailies grade was, it's not going to work, right? right? But, 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 but there's an art to lining that stuff up and yet preserving what was working about visual effects and not breaking it. And so the way that we sort of organize things today is I sit 
with the visual effects supervisor, I'm kind of a, a continuity set of eyeballs because I'm working on every single project. So I know how maybe Captain Marvel was dealt with on her movie and on this show and whatever, right? right. And maybe that visual effects team only knows their show. But then at the same time, um, they know the ins and outs of their show. They know the sensitivity of their filmmakers. Oh man, they really love this. Let's not change it. They hate this. They want to fix this, whatever it is. And we work with the colorist to kind of like get the movie looking like something, bring the DP in, get their notes too. Um, then bring the filmmakers in. Now you've got a baseline. Now if the filmmakers come in and go like, yes, but I wanted it to be blue, not yellow. Okay, great. Now we can do that. Okay. Right. But but what what was happening before was we'd bring the filmmakers in too early and then they would just go like, well, this doesn't match. I mean, this is daylight, the sun, and there's hard shadows and the next shot is overcast. And oh my God, what are we going to do? And you're like, yeah, because you shot in two different places on two different days. Like that's going to happen. We're going to have to figure that out. And now we, we work that out ahead of time. So that by the time we get to presenting the movie, um, everybody's seeing something that's much closer to what they imagined it would be not what it actually would have been if they were just watching dailies, you know? And so it's been an interesting ride, but it's dragged me more and more into the DI and out of stereo. So I still have the stereo team. They still work for me, but I have people that I delegate most of that work to. So yeah. they deal with the day to day of that and I review it, but, um, but I've got a fantastic team of people that do that. So I don't have to sit and watch stereo all day and grind it out shot by shot. I'm sitting in the DI more, and right. making sure that um, that the movie's landing, um, and and the role became not just that prep bit was sort of prepping the DI that early part, but also there are press junkets and demands on the filmmakers' time that start to come in on our films because we finish kind of late. Um, we end up in a point where the filmmakers need to leave. And so you want to have somebody they can trust to sit in the seat and make sure that the other versions of the movie, the high dynamic range version, the, the, uh, the Dolby cinema version, the whatever, all these other versions represent the creative intent that they set when they were in the room. Right. So it doesn't start sliding away. And so, um, that became my role was like, you could hand me the football and I could carry it the rest of the way, you yeah. know? So it's their film. I'm not trying, you know what I mean? But, um, but trying to um, honor their their choices. And even the visual effects supervisors often can't stay. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Like everybody, there's a point in time where I'm looking around and I'm the only one left. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened? It depends on the, depends on the show, but it's, it, it, is, it is really normal. But, but over time, I built trust and relationships with these folks so they know that I'm not going to suddenly impose my own viewpoint on it. Sure. You know? Well, it's so. interesting. Gray, Gray Marshall's actually been on the yeah. show. And so yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. and he was telling me there's something like 35 deliverables that have yes. to happen. Yes. And that's exactly. not even translations or anything else. That's just different colors and formats and everything else that's going it's on. A, it's a lot of it. And, it, and, it, and the thing is, the truth is, is that the, the, the artful way to do it is to make the most of every format, right? So today, so over the time I've been here at Marvel, we've seen HDR become a standard deliverable, right? It wasn't initially, it was felt like a flourish. It felt like a, you know, boutique -y kind of thing. Right. And now our streaming content is HDR first. We have HDR monitoring on the set. We have HDR in the visual effects screening room. We have HDR in the DI. Like this is what we are. That is our creative target, right. not SDR, not Rec 709. Right? right. And it's fantastic. There's a lot more range and you can make a, like an exterior matte painting look so much better in HDR than it ever could look because you've got the dynamic range to get the sun bright enough and to get the shadows dark enough and all the things. It's fantastic. But if you're not planning for uh, your imagery, if you're not reviewing your imagery that way, you can get surprised by things that end up in um, the color channels, right? So, and this is where a, a well-designed show LUT is the key. Um, and a lot of people don't understand the color science. I was not an expert on color science when I started here. I never really had to deal with it at that level. You know what I mean? Sure. And if you think back to film shows, it was much more straightforward in the sense that it was just a film lookup table. And that's what, you know what I mean? It was much more right. normal, but now what you have is people imposing a viewpoint on the color at the beginning of a show, right? Like before they've shot a frame of film, frame of footage, mm -hmm. they are, um, 
trying to decide what their show is going to look like. And they're saying, well, I want a film tone curve and I want a, a color twist where it's cool in the shadows and warm in the highlights. And I want to do, you know, whatever they want to do. Right. And they design that into this LUT that then in theory gets imposed on every single thing that you produce. But then in our films, if you go into say outer space, suddenly you have yellow stars and they don't look good. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I don't want to use that LUT for this outer space stuff. That doesn't look good for that. Right. And so it's been an interesting challenge to sort of help people because people barely understand what's even going on in this color pipeline. And so between CDLs and the LUT and, and, you know, and then the DI, it's like, there's a bunch of variables and they don't really know where, where the creativity is happening, you know, mm. and you don't want your dailies to look like uh, news footage, but at the same time, you, you, if you start imposing something really aggressive, like a really aggressive color twist on your show LUT, um, what ends up happening is the visual effects team then starts getting notes and this is, I've seen it over and over again, where you start getting notes that are like, well, that should be red though. That thing is red. That should be red. And you're like, right. well, this, so this happened. I mean, I'll just give you an example. This happened on uh, Dr. Strange uh, two, which we okay. just finished. And we got into the DI and we're looking at the reds of Wanda's magic. And it's like, it's red. It's supposed to be red. And mm-hmm. the director, Sam Raimi is like, literally like putting a laser pointer on the screen. See, it should be as red as this laser pointer. Right. That's what I want. The, the show LUT that had been designed and had been rolled out to every vendor and everybody was working underneath would not allow red to hit 100. You couldn't get there. It was rolling off in a funky way and twisting to orange. And so you couldn't get, because that's like a film look, right? Like right. you couldn't get that red to, to look right. And so we ultimately had to adjust the show LUT in the middle of the DI and change it. To to allow red to come in. And luckily for us, the visual effects teams on that show were reviewing their stuff in a way that allowed us to do that without breaking things. The, 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 the wand, the woo, just what we call our magic just popped into red and it was just like, ah, there you go. Just changing the LUT. But we were trying to do it by like in the DI at first, we were trying to do it by keying it and twisting, you know, Oh my God, it was, it was breaking everything. And just changing that color science made the difference. But so my, what I always sort of tell people on a personal level, every DP I talk to is like trying to go for as neutral a color spectrum as you can in terms of the color treatment and the let, and let the tone curve do some of that film look work so that you have a a, a toe and a shoulder that maybe is feels filmic. um, But you don't have um, color twists, too many aggressive color twists built in because like we had a show, where um where they where the director really wanted everything to look purple but we couldn't get to purple through the LUT very easily so then the visual effects team start pushing lots of purple in to get a little purple out the other side of the LUT right right start overwhelming the LUT with color to get a little trickle out the other side then you take the LUT off because the LUT's breaking other things suddenly you've got like wackadoodle values <laughs> right in these pixels and you're like, no, 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 that, you know, so it's very, it's a very interesting thing. It works. The, the LUT stuff works very well on photographic stuff that was captured in the camera. When you get into the CG, you can break things if you don't know what you're up to. So the more neutral you can make it, or if you're not going to change your mind and you can make it as representative as possible, that's the other philosophy. But at Marvel, we change our mind a lot. So it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way we do it. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. For sure. I do want to go back a little bit because I do want to ask you a little bit about stereo stuff. I know the the finishing stuff is amazing. Just for our audience purpose, I also did stereo work. My first stereo show was on Tron and that was- Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. All native, right? All native. All native stereo, which is very expensive. (laughs) Yes. And with a burned in decision that you can't really change that often. Right? So I want to, like these days, native stereo is just not a thing that's done anymore is that true except avatar um except avatar. Cam- cameron's cameron's a big fan um he insists that native is the way to go uh even though we did convert titanic and uh <laughs> so right um but but yeah i mean he and actually angley uh did shot native as well for um billy lynn and also for um gemini man 
Okay. So, so, but, but here's the, here's my pitch for conversion and conversions definitely won the battle, um, in the public, but, um, because of the cost and all the things, but the, the, there are limitations in native, um, imagery that make it very difficult, um, from a storytelling perspective, because you have to, if you want to make decisions, bold choices for stereo, uh, and then you reor- rearrange your stereo in your cut. Those bold choices now make it really hard for your eyeballs to track, sure. right? So if you go deep, shallow, deep, shallow, deep, shallow in terms of interocular, it becomes very headache-inducing. Sure. Whereas in a, in a conversion environment, you can tune your stereo to the cut because now you have a cut. You're dealing right. with it as a process at the end, and you can like you don't have to make those decisions as you go. Now, having said that, and um, there are what we do here at Marvel is a hybrid. So if it's obviously we leverage visual effects elements to the extent that we can get them. So there's a lot of opportunities for visual like stereo rendered elements in a 2d background. Sure. So we do that sort of thing a lot so that you get all the cool jazz of a rendered stereo right eye, left eye, but with a converted main plate. Right. Sure. Because if you think about shooting, um, like even Alice, Alice in Wonderland was shot flat. If they had shot it in stereo with a stereo rig, you're just looking at a blue screen. Like you don't, you know, you're not getting most of the imagery, right, most right. of the imagery, you know? So really all they did was extract the characters, convert them. Everything else was rendered in stereo. Right. right? And, and so like Weta has been an amazing partner for us at Marvel over the years. And they have a really strong, because of their relationship with between Peter Jackson and, and, and the Avatar movies and whatever, they know how to render stereo really well. Their pipeline's built for it. So we hit, approach them all the time about they're all CG shots or they're predominantly CG shots. And we have them render those. Because so you still all- have them render stereo stuff for you. You don't when convert we, yes. that. Yeah. Well, we do, but it's both, right? So it okay. just depends. It depends on the shot and what it needs. But like in Black Panther, we have rendered shots that came out of Weta that are amazing. So mm-hmm. it just depends on the show. Now we can't do every single shot. Um, the vendors are, are struggling to finish the 2d. So getting that 3d finished in time is a challenge, but, but if we get to them early and we say, this is a big moment, we want to make sure this, so infinity war is a great example. We have the wizard battle, uh, the Thanos and and Dr. Strange battle in infinity war. That's all rendered. That whole battle is rendered 3d and it looks freaking amazing but we were able to tune the cameras shot to shot in the cut work with their stereography team to 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 get it to match into our style get everything to look right and it looks so cool and they did an amazing job on it it's like one of those pieces that i love um and we converted very little of that scene because Mm -hmm. we were because we got to it early and they set up the comps that way so it was like ready to go but but sometimes um you can't do that and certainly some vendors you know like like I remember with uh, Imageworks, it was interesting because when we approached Imageworks about doing this, they were like, Ooh, we kind of got rid of most of our stereo equipment. We don't have any way to, we could render it, but we don't have any way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no, you know, and the, and the expertise slowly sort of dissipates. That's actually know? interesting. I was going to mm-hmm. ask you about that. Obviously, I mean, Marvel is still, a, you know, does makes all their films in stereo and stuff. Yeah. So there is a there is a market for it still, obviously, right? And that yeah. market is not necessarily in the United States, right? Where where, where is the market? Where is that interest in, in stereo work? So it's in, it's very interesting. So like places you wouldn't necessarily expect. Brazil, we sell 80% of the tickets or 3D tickets in Brazil. Really? Um, yeah. And then obviously China, when we do China releases, like 95% of the tickets are 3D tickets in China. Um, but there are, there, are, there are a few other territories like that. And then inexplicably, like South Korea, it's like 2%. Like they don't like 3D in South Korea for some reason. It's, wow. It's very odd. Japan is a big 3D market. They st- we still release our home video titles in 3D um, in Japan. Right. Like the, you can get a Blu-ray in Ch- in Japan. Um, so um, it's fascinating the different territories and how they've they've evolved. But we're always watching to see what happens with Avatar and if if that reignites an interest. And then you know we could be just around the corner from a technological development that could bring 3D into the home. I don't know if you've seen any of like the auto stereoscopic TVs that they've been started to produce. No mm-hmm. glasses. You just see 3D when you watch the TV. It's pretty amazing. Is it lithography? Um, it's no, it's um, so it's multiple eyes, 
Okay. So you have, I think, nine views uh, or something like that. And um, and so you, you have to be in the right spot. Th- there are limitations to some of this technology, but they're sure. working on it. People are trying to figure it out um, because it can be quite compelling. And the, the, the limitation up till now has always been like nobody, re- even I, I have 3Ds at home, 3D TVs at home. I don't want to put the glasses on. Like, right. you don't, you know what I mean? You get home from work. It's like, I don't want to do that. So you just want to watch the thing. But when you do like as a, a theatrical experience, it's pretty amazing what it can look like on a TV. Um, so I don't know. People will, will, and you know, you can also, there are people out there doing it because I get people tweet me all the time about this. Um, <laughs> Oculus Quest is another way you can do it. So yep. you can actually sit in an IMAX theater in your goggles and see uh, 3D. Uh, in sure. your, it's pretty cool. So, and that's a pretty neat, I mean, obviously the Oculus screen isn't great, but it's, it's still pretty cool. Um, right. So there's still, there's still a loyal fan base for the format, even in the States, but definitely outside. Um, it's just smaller than it used to be. It's not as mainstream as it was. Right. But I mean, I think Avatar two i think that they're like almost all of the screens are going to be 3d screens yeah well i think cameron has a lot of sway in it <laughs> well not just that he's passionate he's passionate about I it know. but i think people will support it i think that i think that you know when we you know, dr strange 2 which we released um this year was a big 3d title for us and people um people really responded to it like um it, it was very well re- reviewed and received on the 3d front um, and we had buy-in from the filmmakers. They wanted to do it. So Sam Raimi's in there with us, designing the scene, say, go bigger, go deeper, go crazy. Right. You know what I mean? And that, and Dr. Strange one was the same way. It was all about like the magical mystery tour in 3d is you've got to see this. So there's a, there's a heritage there that worked for that. And also he's shooting wide lenses, long takes, like it's perfect for the yes. format. Right. Yes. So we get handed the film we get handed and sometimes it fits the format better than others. We do our best with it, but that film fit the format beautifully. So we were able to go crazy with it. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I mean, obviously I I still think there's something interesting about the fact that we have two eyes and we should look at things with two eyes. Uh, But I I think that also, you know, Marvel has, 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 you know, there's a lot of Marvel films out there and there's a, you have, it's interesting to hear about you trying to make that a consistent look and the way that it, that it works. So it's really kind of fascinating uh, how that is. I mean, have you enjoyed it? I mean, it sounds fascinating. You spent a lot of time in a screening room, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I've learned so much since I've been here and, and, you know, I think that's how you stay young, right. Is you just keep learning new stuff. And I know you do this too, is sort of yep. like, you're not just like, well, I know everything I need to know. I'm just going to do it now. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're always yeah. looking at like, what's the next technological advancement? What's the next cool way to do something? Sure. And, um, and, and, and so between, you know, like I say, there's the creative piece of like, how can we tell a better story? How can we immerse the audience more? If you think about the kind of films that we're making here at Marvel, they're events, you know what I mean? Sure. You get you get the sitter and you buy the pop or whatever, or you bring the kids and you get the popcorn and you sit there and you have, so we're supporting all kinds of formats. We have screen X, which is a 270 degree screen thing. Wow. We're doing 40 X, which is movable hydraulic seats with wind and spray and all kinds of stuff. Like, and you can see the movie all kinds of different ways. Dolby cinema, IMAX is an amazing partner for us. We're doing we, we lean into these different formats because we're like, give people an event and something fun. Sure. Not, that's not going to be appropriate for every movie. Sure. Absolutely. But for what we're trying to do, I, I I'm like, let's make it as cool as we can make it. And maybe people will go see it in a few different formats and see which one they like better. You know, like that's good. It's good for everybody. Um, but always with this underpinning of like, I, I, it's like this physician's oath, I call it the stereographer's oath or whatever, like do no harm first, right? Mm-hmm. So never never take people out of the movie with the gimmick, right? right. So it's got to support it. So there are times where we'll shallow up the stereo just because that moment doesn't need it. You know what I mean? And and we'll say like, I, I don't want to take people out on this moment and have them looking around the room. I want them looking at their eyes, whatever. So, you, you know, and because we have a cut, we can right. make those calls, and, and the filmmakers can be involved in those decisions and stuff. So, but so yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun for me to kind of, you know, um, just explore, you know, when we're in this kind of like crazy explosion, not just of content, but also 
of of the tool set we have to play with. So HDR has been a crazy journey to figure out how to do it. When we first started the road of doing HDR, it was so hard. We were just like, oh my God, this looks terrible. Like, what are we going to do? And we figured it out to the point that now I'm really proud of the HDR films that we're putting out. I went back and remastered all of the content like everything from iron man one on i I remastered all the films so i got to do that so that was like a really fun project i love hdr stuff it's so yeah yeah. it's so cool but but i've seen bad ones too yeah you know what i mean so you know it's like and right now there's a real appetite for dark imagery like very dark subdued flat imagery without a lot of contrast and you can achieve that in hdr but it can be tricky because you can go too far Yep. And you can and depends st- on the TV that people have or whatever you're exactly. looking at. You've lost everything. <laughs> no, exactly. And yeah. so you've got to figure out how to protect the storytelling for all the theaters. And that goes back to the stereo stuff because not every theater has a bright bulb and all the things. And so, you know, you, you, you have to engineer your content so that it'll play on a lot of screens. Yeah. And, and these are all the things you think about. I'm at, I'm a, I actually live in Burbank, so I'm next to the the theater that's got the laser projection. And yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's just the deepest colors. It's wonderful. It's, it's incredible. Wonderful. And we do a special pass for that version. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, a yeah. special grade. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, listen, this has been amazing. I do want to know, like, you know, obviously I know you can't tell me much, but if, in broad strokes, broad strokes, can you tell me what is the vision of, of Marvel? Like, I mean, obviously you guys have incredible success with all this stuff. Where do you think this is going to go? Where, what's the next 10 years of Marvel going to be? Is it just going to be more stuff or there's a, a grander vision of, of the evolution of the studio? One of the fascinating things I tell people who don't believe me about working here is that like, I have a window that's further than the window you have publicly about what's coming but i don't have the full picture and stuff changes and stuff evolves and i'm on the journey with you to a little to a certain extent so i do know that we've you know we've announced films all the way through 2025 so we know i know i've got a job through there (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean and it doesn't feel like i mean i the superhero as a genre fascinates me right from a from a film history, film historian standpoint, because sure. I think about people talk about it compared to the musicals mm-hmm. and the, how popular and ever present the musicals were at one point in Hollywood history. I think about the Western as another example of that. There was a period of time where there were whole industries around old West towns here in LA that you could go shoot your Western and horse people. And uh, there was a whole industry built up around that. Yep. And right now the comic book movie is that thing. Yep. But what's what I think is what I love about what we're doing here at Marvel that makes it somewhat unique is we're not just telling the same story over and over again. Kevin Feige has had so much fun opening it up and set, saying, hey, we got this IP and that IP. So look at Werewolf by Night, for example. Right. So cool. Such a fun little one-off project. Black and white. We did a film out scan back on that show. We did uh-huh. all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like a little monster movie. For Halloween, and it has nothing. It's it's from an MCU property, but it has nothing to do with anything. Sure, sure. <laughs> right. And it's yeah. just like how incredible that we can make these things. And so it doesn't just have to be everything leading to an Avengers movie to be cool. You know, you can make a buddy movie, you can make a comedy. Taika can make a movie that's. I I mean, and it's funny because the fans are on the ride, and it's it's so weird and different, like everything that's coming, and they can't make sense of it. And honestly, I don't have the secret formula. I don't know what we're doing next. You know what I mean? So the shows move. They show but you're making the, sure it looks good. <laughs> they show up and post and I go like, okay, I got it. Let's go. Right. And we do the next thing. But it's, but 10 years, I don't know. I know yeah. what five years is. After that, I don't know what we do. Right, right, right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, listen, I, I don't know if you have any sway in this, but I've been trying to figure out how to get Victoria on this show and to ask oh her God. some more questions. She would be amazing. And yeah. especially because of her background and she's got an incredible important history in, in, in computer graphics and the yeah. influence that she's had. So it'd be amazing if you ever talk to her, tell her, say, hey, no. I would love to. <laughs> yeah, I'll, definitely, to I'll definitely tell her. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, listen, it's been an hour. You've shared some incredible stories. I think we can learn so much from everything you've done. And Evan, it's been awesome seeing you. Maybe one day we'll get together again. And yes. Just have yeah, a, now, now we're have some a, lunch. We're out of, out of yeah. a pandemic, we can do these things. Yeah, absolutely. So it's absolutely. It's going to happen. Awesome. No, it's been great. It's so great to see you and talk to you, Chris. And I, I hope I haven't uh, uh, bored everybody too much, but it's uh, it's been a fun little his- history lesson for me. So it's good. Thank you.